everybody, and welcome to episode 25 of Ask the CEO with Abraham Gatile. Today's guest is the publisher of Telecom Reseller Magazine, the number one magazine for businesses in the telecom field with a subscription base of over 40,000 readers a month. It's my pleasure to welcome Doug Green. Welcome, Doug. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? Very good, and uh, thanks for inviting me to do this. It's an odd experience because I'm usually on the other side of the microphone, so to speak, asking questions. <laughs> so we have you in the hot seat today. Yeah, I have to answer questions. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's, it's a real honor having you. So I know you've been really busy lately. You've been going to events. Uh, I know we had the Avaya event. Uh, which event was that, by the way? Well, I went to two events back to back. I went to IT Expo in Fort Lauderdale, and there was a co-event there, IoT Expo as well. Mm. And uh, yeah, IT Expo's, uh, the TMC people do a very good job of co-locating a whole bunch of events. And we actually hosted an event at that conference called Telecom Reseller Week at IT Expo. Uh, so that, that, that consisted of a series of sessions on a whole bunch of topics. And then we had, um, and then right after that uh, was the Avaya Engage, which has historically been held in the spring or summer, but this year they chose, Avaya chose to choose it in February um, to coincide with the release of a number of new products. And I think also possibly to, um, you know, calm uh, user concerns over their reorganization. Mm. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Um, how was the turnout? Well, the, the turnout at both shows was very good. Um, I think IT Expo is uh, actually growing again after a period of, of uh, stagnating. I think uh, being in Fort Lauderdale, this is just a Doug opinion, but I think <laughs> being in Fort Lauderdale um, is, a, is actually, it's maybe not as fun a place as, uh, as being at Miami Beach at yeah. the Jackie Gleason Conference Center, whatever it's called, but it's so much more practical. Um, it's you know very easy to to drive and park. It's very easy to get in and out. It's very easy for exhibitors to load their own booth. It's very easy for people to find um, very affordable accommodations. And my own personal theory is that half of the conferences are either have a condominium down there, are related to a family member who has a condominium down there, or um, has a parent who has a condominium down there. So um, I think that, you know, the, all those things actually add, I think actually as a practical matter, there's a more robust tele, telecom or UC UCAS business community in the, um, in the, in, as we go further up the coast there. So, you know, the Fort Lauderdale brings in Boca and so on and, and a whole bunch of things. So that show was really good. And, and our, uh, our sessions with Gary Auden, and a number of other speakers hosted were great. Uh, the Avaya conference uh, was actually, we are told, a uh, record turnout, um, not maybe for all time, but in, let's say, the next, in the last five or, or six years. So there definitely were a lot of people there um, and um, a lot of interest. Um, and, uh, you know, I think something, I think that a lot of people, and I think maybe we'll talk a little bit about this uh, as we go forward. One of the things that I observe in reporting on 
uh, IT and you see is the divergence between the actual install base and the, if you will, the tip of the spear, which is what's being sold right now. So what's very difficult for a lot of the people uh, that I report on at least is they're involved, their whole life is involved in selling whatever is selling today. Okay. They have very little contact, however, with what their customers are actually dealing with, which is what got sold yesterday or 10 years ago, or even maybe 20 years ago. So as an interesting example, uh, the very hotel that we were, um, that um, the Vi Engage uh, uh, conference was held in was the massive MGM hotel. I looked it up. It's the third largest hotel in the whole world. Guess what type of switch is inside the hotel, which is it's probably been built. It was built in 1994 and it's been, you know, re revived and restored and reconfigured maybe four times since then. Guess which, which, uh, which brand of PBX is on the wall. If I had to guess, I would say an Avaya. <laughs> you were very close. It's it's technically Avaya. It's Nortel. Nortel. Okay, that Nortel. would be my second guess. Yeah, and and I'm just pointing this out for for listeners who might be interested in this. Here we have a giant hotel with I don't know, three thousand, four thousand, five thousand rooms. There's you know all sorts of businesses. You know there's there's as many restaurants in one of these major Vegas hotels as you would find in a you know, maybe in a whole suburban city. You know, in other words, you have a lot of phones and plus administrative offices and uh, backroom offices and so on. A lot of telecommunications equipment. That, whoever is doing the UC manager, in other words, our reader at that hotel, the guy that's in charge of that complex is dealing with a network that parts of it are maybe up to 20 years old. Certainly some of it's up to 10 years old. That's a reality. And, you know, that's not a non-functioning hotel or something. So it, it's very important to understand this when we talk about terms like cloud, migration, even VoIP, that the rate of migration in unified communications is very slow compared to other IT areas. Now, why do you think that is? We're, uh, I guess there's uh, several things uh, that are for that reason. Part of it is this. To a certain degree, unified communications, what used to be called telecom, is, is an appliance, is more of an appliance end of, tele, of IT than, than, every other, than maybe every other part of IT. It's more like a toaster than it is the rest of your kitchen. So theoretically, let's, let's, use a, let's think about your kitchen for a second. Theoretically, there's no reason for you to have a toaster on account of the fact that your oven can very easily do all the functions your toaster does. Um, and if you think about some people's toasters actually are in fact little ovens, right? They're, they're, exactly. they're like little miniature versions. So why on earth would you need a toaster? Uh, the, the simple, I'll answer my own question. The reason is it's a simple to use appliance that's very robust and very reliable. And it's sort of easier to use than, um, than, the, than the oven. This is, that's, that's the easiest way to describe the role that in most companies, uh, the bulk of unified communications plays. In other words, there are desktop phones. There are now applications maybe to hook up your mobility device, your, uh, your, your tablet, your iPhone and so on to, to the PBX or whatever they're using. But 
you could theoretically, in many cases, make phone calls from uh, your computer, and many people do. But it's just very easy to have a desktop phone to pick up and use. So the desktop phone is still there. And it's still there in call centers. It's still there in, in thousands and thousands of applications. Um, and the, pro the thing about it is they're very robust. The phones last a long time. And there is a certain functionality which, you know, since like the 1970s hasn't really changed. And that is you kind of pick it up and you make a phone call. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's it. Um, you can load it up with some more stuff and people do, and you can load it up with extra features so that it's uh, one touch or you can call someone's name. There's a lot of cool things you can do with it. But at the end of the day, um, there's still many, many job functions where, I mean, as an example, you walk into your physician's um, uh, office um, let's describe what's going on in the examining room where they prep you for the exam. There's a wall phone. Then you walk into the next room. There's another wall phone. Then let's say he examines you another wall phone. Then let's say he says, uh, I don't like the way that looks. Let's talk in my office. You walk into his office or her office and you're likely to see a phone on the desk. Right now, all the time he has uh, the, uh, everyone in the room has uh, mobility devices where you can easily communicate for a number of reasons, including HIPAA, regulatory, and just certain expectations and so on, you still have these devices on the, on the desk. They last a long time. And, and, and here's the, the thing, they're hooked up to a key system, a PBX, a platform, something, which is kind of durable and robust. And it's just not gonna wear out, you know, in 10 years. And, you know, what happens is there becomes a practical thing. In other words, whoever, you know, MGM is a giant company. That PBX probably got zeroed out to, to, to no capital value many years ago. But when it comes to IT spending, we're, uh, you know, if we replace that with something different, um, would the, would, you know, would revenues improve at MGM hotel so much that it would justify it this year. That's a tricky thing. Eventually that will be true. Uh, there's always a good case to buy new. I don't want to say that, right. but, but it, you can see how um, you can see how that type of the replacement of that equipment can get deferred behind other things. Mm. And, you know, I love that analogy with the toaster because that really resonates with me. It's an everyday thing and everybody knows what a toaster is and everybody knows what an oven is and that describes it so clearly as to why the sales aren't moving as quickly as IT spending for example right the, the i've been watching this market for a long time and and this actually i think may have even fed into the troubles that sometimes companies get into our industry the industry at least that i report on uh, grows at GDP plus two or 3%. So in other words, we currently have a GDP where we're an advanced mature economy. Advanced mature economies grow at basically about two to 3% a year. Um, and therefore, if you're selling UC in the United States or Canada or the United Kingdom or any of the you know countries that are at that stage, you're, you're made, the entire industry that you're in is growing at maybe four or 5%. Um, 
right. And uh, so clearly some, there's always someone running around growing at 42%. There's someone running around growing at eight, 900%, right? Right. But the median is at 5%. And it's, um, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, think, it, it, you know, if you're good with numbers or you can sort of imagine different things d- dynamically, think of the stock market, right? I mean, the reason we have these sort of NASDAQ, these indexes, the, the 100, the 30 on the Dow and all that is to give you some kind of gauge um, about how, how the real, how in the real world everything is doing. And if you look at, at markets and so on over, over time, there's a speed bump. It, it's rather like the light, the speed of light, right? In, in, in motion, we cannot right now go faster than the speed of light. In economics, there's ultimately a speed bump for every, every, every undertaking in the economy, and that is the GDP is growing at a certain rate. So unless you're coming out with a product which is just sensational, which just fills a need that no one knew they had before, that people are willing to even decide not to spend over here to spend on that, right? Um, you're not going to grow. You're ultimately headed for a growth rate at around GDP. So we're talking about an old part of IT. Um, you know, the the um, unified communications piece of IT literally goes back to the 19th century, uh, to the birth of of, uh, of what I consider to be the first cloud, right? The Bell system. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, um, it's, it's been for a long time connected to the rate of growth. If you think about it this way, here's another way of looking at the model for those who are listening, who are saying, gee, I want to be in that business. You know, in every, in any given year, if you think about the city or community you live in, in the outer bits of it, there's a certain amount of development, right? There's a certain amount of acreage that goes under, and now you have a little business park going up or a little office building someone puts up a, a fast food store, someone else puts up a hotel and so on. Well, okay, that all, each of those units is gonna generate a certain amount of demand for, for, if you will, unified communications, right? Each floor, each place, each so on, will demand a platform, it will demand some equipment. Even if those companies buy cloud, they're still probably gonna buy some endpoints, they're gonna buy some other stuff that has to reside on prem. So, and what I'm describing here is the actual growth of the economy. In other words, what's going to go inside those uh, uh, those buildings are new companies. And then, of course, there's a certain turnover in, you know, in existing properties and, and so on. And um, there's literally how many desks, how many phones will be on those desks, how many people are working, and so on. Um, in the United States, we've just caught gone through a decade where I think unless my numbers are wrong we have just come back to the number of total people that were working before the crash so -hmm. in other words that you know there's been a lot of job creation you had a lot of job destruction during the crash and then you had a lot of job creation you know you had however many months of continuous job creation at the end of the crash but we we went into a deep valley Right. Um, so the, we're now, I don't know whether it was this year or maybe it was just in the last few quarters, but we're now a little bit north of where we were in 07 or 08 in terms of total employment. Yeah. And, and just one, one note on the employment, at least this has been my observation, is that 
even in the job creation, it wasn't really in parity with the jobs that were taken away. So right, well, and that and that, and that is the that is the uh, uh, what Joseph Schumpeter, a famous economist, called the um, he called it the gales of creative destruction. <laughs> so what happens? And it's funny because the economy operates to a certain degree just as nature does. So what occurs is at any given time during a regular year when there's no crisis, some businesses go out of business and some people go into business. So, you know, near you, some companies shut down and the storefronts are empty and then something new comes in. Um, what happens during a crash, especially like the one we went through, is it's almost like when it, what they describe in biology as a great dying, right? Mm -hmm. There's There are all these companies that are very, very fragile. They enter uh, this episode and there's a huge die-off, if, if you will, of companies. And to your point, and I think it actually is showing up in the, uh, you know, in, in politically and otherwise in the, in the country since then, the jobs that come are different jobs. So in other words, the employment picture of the United States in uh, 2017 is, okay, we have maybe the same number of people working as we did in 07, but they're different people. And they're totally different jobs and they're completely different job skill sets. Mm -hmm. And if you were unfortunately 50 or 56 or 60 and 07 and the industry you went in just blew up, basically the company went, just went away. Maybe you're employed now. It's also possible you just never re-entered the workforce or, or formally entered the workforce because basically that vocation is it literally gone. Um, and what happens in economics also is the, um, and, and it, it, we had this it, you know, very visibly in the 1930s. There's a theory that if you look at the 20th century, weirdly enough, you may think of the 60s as maybe like the, or the 80s or something like that as the year, the decade of the, of the most amount of new technologies, but it might've actually been the 30s. Mm. Uh, part of the story of the depression uh, might have been that there was an, an, a, a huge change in technology um, that was uh, churning along, along with, you know, financial crisis and a whole bunch of other things going on. Um, so, you know, in other words, when we have one of these, you know, we, uh, I think we have a recession every three, four, five years. Those are very different things. Those are usually caused by a snap in the price of energy, which causes a recession, or the uh, central banks basically misjudge how quickly they should raise interest rates to uh, curb inflation, and they kind of overdo it. Um, or some kind of exogenous things, uh, a war, a crisis of some kind. But these are usually very short. Um, when you have... Um, we came very close to systemic failure, right? In in yeah. in, in 07. The whole I mean, government the, shut down. <laughs> right. The, the late night talk show joke was the bankers weren't willing to trust other bankers to lend money. <laughs> they were, that was the joke, right? I'm not going to lend those guys money. I know what they're up to. Uh, you know, when they, when they were talking about frozen liquidity, right? The freezing up of these huge credit markets, 
um, that's like that's something that basically none of us none of us who are working today would have ever lived through that that had not happened literally since you know since the depression um, so when you go through some sort of huge kind of failure like that or huge economic crisis like that what happens is in and this speaks to our industry there's a speeding up of of adoption of technologies that are perceived to make companies more productive or to save money. So I strongly suspect that um, it impacted the adoption of VoIP. It probably also sped up the adoption of cloud. And it may have also improved the ability of cloud to present itself um, to even larger enterprise. Hmm. Yeah, that's, no, that's very fascinating what you, what you mentioned. You know, one thing I want to ask you, because people ask me this all the time, and there seems to be a uh, misconception about cloud. Like people understand or sort of understand what cloud is with regards to computers, as they would call it, you know, in a simple term, computers, <laughs> network, they understand you, you put your files in the cloud. But then when we talk about cloud communications, a lot of people get confused. Well, I think, you know, I think I, I like the um, model that I saw the other day. Um, and as you have seen in this podcast, I'm a big fan of economic history. So the sort of the way it's what I use to try to understand what's going on. So everybody, you know, even if you're not a big history buff, you might have at some point in your life seen a, a photograph of, the, especially if you live in the East, but even in the West, you, uh, uh, what your community looked like, like in the year 1900. And you, one of the things that's striking, especially if your town was kind of industrial was, there's like a lot of smoke in the air, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. And there's like chimneys and all this stuff belching out. And right. So what that was, was that um, prior to the development of really, really good electrical grid systems and the public generation of a lot of power and a lot of cheap power, companies that manufactured things um, basically made their own power. They had a power plant. They burned coal. In other words, when you, if you ran a factory, you didn't just hook up to Portland General Electric or something. You, what you did is you had in the back a big uh, thing burning coal and a big tub of water belching out steam and other things belching out whatever comes from coal after you burn it. And all this was to generate the electricity. You, you generated your own power. You actually generated the power that powered the, um, the, the, the machinery that, that ran your factory. Um, you were basically, if you will, off the grid. Hmm, um, no idea. Right. And this, this, so this is, this is, if you will, the industrial revolution Mach one or Mach two. And that is um, you're not only in the business of manufacturing boots or, or gloves or, uh, you know, brakes for cars or whatever it is you're building. You're actually also in the business of generating electricity or generating power, or maybe, you know, you have an engine that literally just has this big conveyor belt or, something that transmits the energy right to the machine that all the workers are at. Um, and, and by the way, that's a legacy of, of how 
um, industry started. And if you go to, let's say, Manchester, New Hampshire, um, you'll see these huge old factories that are literally sitting like right on top of the rivers that kind of go through the town. So they were just simply using the water power. Mm. They just built the factory right on top of the river. And then they had a big old uh, thing in the, in the, in the uh, water. Basically the, the river transmitted the energy right to the mill that was right above it. So it also didn't, it's not just a matter of maybe the power wasn't that good. Initially it didn't occur to anybody that you would, that you wouldn't do that. In other words, it just made sense that if you needed a lot of energy, of course you would generate it on your own. Um, so what happens later is there's the there's a huge uh, uh, revolution in electricity. The electrical revolution is just huge, right? It's it's uh, it doesn't just change how we live because there's light and very dependable electricity, and you you sort of take it for granted that the lights are always on. But there's also now this giant amount of power that industry can hook up to. And whether you're generating the power at Niagara Falls, which is you know how a lot of New York basically got its power, or whether you're just generating it from a big coal, a coal plant or something, you still are generating maybe a lot of stuff that goes in the air, but now you're just doing it in one place, right? It's just this huge place and you have one fire burning for the entire city and all the factories in it and so on. And uh, we take that for granted today. Now that's basically the way to look at the cloud. That's an easy way to think about the cloud. In other words, in the early, you know, computing Mach 1, Mach 2, Mach 3, I have a computer at work, but it's not hooked up to anything. It just, it's there, right? And I, I look at a, what were those screens? They were like black and green or something. Oh, yes. <laughs> right? ERT like monitors. Yes. So that's like a computer Mach 1. Computer Mach 2 is, I bought a PC. It took me, um, it took me six days to set up. Plus I had to bring the geeky guy that in my family that I don't like that much to help <laughs> me and still kind of doesn't work. And then I bought Prodigy so that I can look at maps of weather. So it doesn't look so weird and whatever. Right. So there was a little bit of hooking up. So, you know, fast forward to where we are, where maybe a few years ago, where basically, okay, uh, it's accepted that if you have a computer, uh, whether it's one machine or it's on a little local network at work or at home, um, you're now hooking up to the internet, right? We, are, we like getting information and email and all that. All that's happening with cloud is, is what happened with the with the electrical generation, you know, a hundred years ago, and that is, well, all we're saying is, instead of having to generate all that processing power at your home or at work or wherever you are, let's do that processing power at a data center, at a giant data center, that serves you and everybody else, and and it's almost unfortunate that we call it the cloud because it becomes like religious mystification, right? I don't know. It's in the sky. So yeah. now it's magic, right? Well, okay. What it really is, is it's not in the cloud. There's no cloud. It's not in the sky. There's nothing magical about it. All that's happening is we're, we're just simply handing off, not just like you said, it makes sense to people. Okay. There's a big storage device somewhere and they're holding my photos. 
because and that that makes a lot of sense to me immediately to people because you run out of memory right it's the first bad mm -hmm. thing that happens to your computer now what's happening though is eventually you run out of processing the processor gets old or crappy or whatever and then also there's all the great joy of dealing with viruses and and your computer crashed and all that right so where the cloud is very um is very attractive is essentially that's eliminated right i mean essentially what's happening is you're instead of piping into whatever machine you have now you're piping into a really 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 good machine a whole bank of them a whole bunch of them and instead of your management skills which maybe eh, you know <laughs> you have a little bit of experience, but you're still, you know, not that different than the guy that set up the computer in 1984 or whatever, right? Um, now what's happening is you're basically being able to take advantage of the, of the very best skills available. Um, the very best uh, skills available, you know, for security, for storage, for processing, for speed and everything else. Now what's enabling it is 20 years ago, we were literally dialing up the internet. So, right, so the data centers were great, but we couldn't really access that. So this is very similar to what happened with the power. Initially, theoretically, you could have built a giant power plant in 1880 that would supply enough power for, you know, all of New York City, but there wasn't the ability possibly to really, to transmit that power, right? Transmission was, a necessary revolution before we could, everyone could get on the grid. That's all that's happened now here with, 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 uh, with IT. We now have the transmission ability in place, more or less, I'm not saying it's all there, but more or less, to deliver really great services remotely, to offload that, that task to somebody else. And I think what happens, I'm, my company is a great, and I know you're doing the interview with the CEO. So, you know, my company um, switched a number of years ago from sending out, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, we actually used to send out by mail with stamps um, in paper invoices every month. You know, we now invoice online. Yeah. We used QuickBooks online, little plug for QuickBooks online. Why? Well, I saw the, I saw the, I immediately saw the benefits of it. No more software updates. No more what type of software do you use? All those administrative roadblocks that have nothing to do with my business are now not there. I am always, my, me, my bookkeeper, everyone that's involved in the finances of the business, we're all using now the very latest that's available for that, for that program. We had, we literally every day, there's a, you know, whatever advantages, whatever improvements, they're available to me. I don't have to wait till the next time I get around to buying software or whatever. And there's continuous improvements in the way that I'm able to, to bill and, and talk to my customers financially, right? And the way that they can communicate with me financially. Um, so there's a great example of, you know, I'm, it's not just I'm saving on some stamps. I'm getting paid faster, right? Yeah. You never I, have to deal with, oh, well, I never received the invoice. <laughs> right. I can actually see you saw, somebody saw the invoice at 2 a.m. or 2 p.m. or whatever, right? I, 
all, every we are it's not just a matter of money it's a form of communication which in my opinion is actually better than the way i was communicating to them right companies communicate to customers different ways one of the ways you communicate to them is you know you you have a financial relationship with them this i think is better that why did why is the what, what does that have to do with the cloud well i'm a small company i'm not a very big company i can now basically um have the same kind of very sophisticated billing that was really only available to a company big enough to have that kind of back office support, those types of data servers, that type of programming just a few years ago, right? and all the integration that goes with it. Now, here we come to, you know, a huge question that everybody's going to have that, you know, in a way, I guess the market's going to have to sort out. And that is now in exchange for that, I have to pay a fee. So, you know, I play, I have, I'm, I'm involved in two poker games. Um, and some of the gentlemen that I play with are a little older than me. Some of them are retired. You know, I tell them I've got all my books, all of it in the cloud. They think that's nuts. <laughs> right. They just think that I'm an insane person. You know, hand over the mortgage to a family friend and put yourself in an asylum now. Um, I, I know what they're thinking. <laughs> all right. Um, now, my argument is, number one, your finances are sitting in the back of some dental office in a computer, and you think that that's secure, right? My, my finances are guarded 24 hours a day by a team of very professional people that understand that if they, if my finances are breached, they're out of business. Yeah. They have great, I, I don't know if I could buy better security. So I'm pretty happy with what I've got. And uh, just, uh, just a note, you know, about data centers. So some people may not even understand the magnitude of security that goes on at data centers. I mean, some of these, you need a retina scan, fingerprints, um, you know, pat downs. Right. <laughs> they, well, they're highly secure. And let me go back to the, this is why I think this simple analogy, I think, you know, for non-technology companies, especially, um, it's not so easy for them to understand what you just even said, right? They're not, because in their imagination, data center, computer, it's all just sort of whatever, right? Um, that's why I like this power thing, which is so much easier to yeah. understand. Imagine if, if you're, okay, let's not say Dennis, but let's say um, you decided you wanted to, um, you know, own a, a, a small office park. This is what you do. Now, would you ever in your imagination say, okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a, an electrical generating station next to the office park. <laughs> and, and now I'm going to be, now let's even, what that means, right? Look at the businesses that I'm now in. Instead of I'm in the business of leasing offices and that's what I do. Now I'm in the business of <laughs> power generation. So now I got to go and hire a guy that knows about how to run, I guess, a fire, right? Which is, you know, contain fire to, to generate the electricity or however I'm going to do it. If I'm doing it with coal or gas or what I've got to actually now, now I'm in the business of buying commodities. I'm going to buy futures. I'm going to buy so many cubic yards of whatever it is I'm buying, you know, it for March delivery, right? I mean, you know, in other words, when, you, when we think back at what, what was going on a hundred years ago, uh, or a hundred and whatever years ago at maybe the local Ford plant when they were, you know, generating their own power or something. 
there was a whole team of people that was actually doing that. There was specialists on the actual machine, someone, bench technicians maintaining the machine, guys in some shop actually repairing the machine, building parts when it would all break down, some guy driving a truck back and forth to feed the coal or whatever, right? And then actually probably an administrative team of some kind, right? Who had to make purchases and, um, and maybe see if they could make deals on it, and right? In other words, this was a whole business. Right? This was, and it's not even the business that you're in. And every business had that. Um, this is analogous, this is analogous to what we have today in IT. There probably is a great case to have an IT team in companies above a certain size. Um, now, clearly companies of my size, we're a small firm. Uh, for me to use the cloud, now what I'm doing is I don't have to have an IT team, right? I'm able to buy into very sophisticated technology teams. They're taking care of it. Uh, look, the, uh, the, other, the, other, the other analogy that I'll use is the Netflixation of the United States or the world maybe, right? What did Netflix do? They said, do you have eight bucks in your pocket or whatever they're charging now, nine bucks, whatever, right? Eight, nine, 10, 20, it doesn't really matter, right? They, they found a, a dollar amount that it's like, yeah, I, I can give you eight bucks. Right? I can't even buy lunch for that. So I'll give you eight bucks. And they said, okay, for that eight bucks, I'll give you a bunch of movies. And then and a little later on, they said, hey, we're going to give you these like great original TV series that you can't even find on regular TV anymore. Because the big networks don't do this anymore, right? And then that kind of caught on. But here's the thing that, that sort of happened. Um, you're not giving them eight bucks a month, you're actually giving them 60, 70, $80 a year, right? Over three years, you're actually, it adds up to real money. But at eight bucks a month or $9 a month. You don't think about it. You really don't think about it. You're, you're, so this is, this is sort of essentially the, the, the nexus of where the cloud and content and justification all sort of come together. In other words, here's a company that's running a very beautiful cloud service. You can, here's a company that's basically offering uh, great content available to you wherever you are, on your phone, if you're sitting stuck on a train, whatever you're doing, right? You can watch Netflix as long as you can get on the internet. And all you need is an $8 a month subscription. And kind of everyone in your home can get on, right? I don't have any, I mean, we have three people in our home and apparently all of us can watch it at the same time, right? I guess. So, um, and, and it's really pretty good, right? And some of it's actually very good. Um, this, so here's Microsoft now with Office 365. What did we used to do with Microsoft? We used to line up. Do, does anyone remember this? People used to Microsoft actually. Windows, yeah. Yeah, they Windows. lined up. Yeah. They lined up. It was an onion. It was an onion uh, joke for those of you who like the Daily Onion, right? People lining up to get software. Okay. Um, that seems very quaint now. But a little later on, though, here was the problem. Everybody would show up at when there was still a software store and say, yeah, you know, um, my wife teaches kindergarten at the religious school that kind of makes us an academic household let me buy the academic version 
of Microsoft. I want to buy, you know, um, I'm kind of a student. I watch courses online on the free station on TV. So I'm a student. Can I get, you know, there were all these dodges around because no one really wanted to pay three or four or $500 to buy the suite of software that you needed. Um, And this was certainly true if your company was in some sort of specialty. So for us, we used to have to buy Quark or Adobe or the, you know, the stuff you need for publishing. And, you know, you, you'd be all of a sudden confronted with a thousand dollar software bill. And don't, you know, the way people would try to, to get around that bill. Right. Mm -hmm. So finally the software company said, Hey, wait a second. Why don't we, why don't we make a deal? We'll give you access to the latest and greatest all the time. No more shenanigans. You don't have to pretend that you're in high school. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Or whatever. Right. And you give us an annuity and we'll price the annuity that it's not insane. Right. It's going to be 10 bucks a month or a hundred dollars a year, or in other words, a, a, a number that's very, very tolerable um, that almost anybody can pay. And then get this, if it's t- some kind of system where you're gonna be kind of like, you know, exchanging files with other people, this eliminates the horrific thing of you're on the wrong version, right? If, so what Microsoft is doing is, is I think very revolutionary, right? In other words, this is a quiet revolution. If we're all gonna start to access Microsoft online, basically, if we're all gonna end up basically using their latest products, that becomes kind of the standard behavior. Well, it's pretty good news for Microsoft, right? It entrenches them, right? And it's good for everyone else because now they have access to things that the big companies had, like you said, without pretending and doing it the right way. That's exactly it. So, so, th- so this is this is in essence the cloud. In other words, what the cloud is really all about is it's real simple for those of you who are civilians. It just means that instead of relying on your machine, you're hooking yourself up to a big data center somewhere. And then now what's happening is so that was the storage part that you talked about. And then a little later on, there was okay, hey, there's more muscle right? That, that thing out there has more muscle than my old tired machine. So that's good. And now we're getting to the content part of the cloud, right? And now we're getting Netflix at 10 bucks a month. Now we're getting Microsoft, all their programs at $10 a month. And then of course that brings us to my world. What is Microsoft in, in, including in those licenses? Skype, right? And what are they, what are they rolling out for business? Skype for business. So the revolution that's now occurring that I think will uh, change, will you know, see the next decade be a very interesting year of changes. You know, Microsoft, which is a software company, is thinking about um, being a phone company, really, really a phone company, right? Maybe even with hardware, right? We're seeing a little bit of hardware coming out of Microsoft, not in phones, but in other areas, right? Who knew, right? Uh, Google Dunce wants to obviously be way more than a search engine. They want to be a phone company too. Facebook wants to be also the way you communicate, right? So there. So the thing about the cloud, um, and that I think nobody can see how this will sort out is, 
it swings both ways. It also liberates companies to kind of completely re reposition themselves and be something kind of different than what they began being. Yeah, in other words, they, they don't have to be the power plant anymore. They can focus strictly on their own business and right. someone else do all the things that have nothing to do with their business. Right. And now this is, you know, this is very threatening, I think, to many of my readers. Uh, because what I'm describing is, you know, if they're listening, some of them might say, hey, well, what about my job? Right. I. I, you know, I need my company to want to have an IT uh, division. I think there's two ways of looking at this. So I want to be very candid. There's probably going to be a number of companies that um, were relatively smaller and there were sort of marginal reasons for them to ever have an IT department. It mostly just had to do with the fact that management had no other way to cope with the continuous problems people had with whatever technology they were using. So let's hire Fred and he'll answer all those questions, right? Okay. What I'm describing in that type of company is the devices and stuff that's going to go in over the next decade. Um, Fred won't be answering the questions because those devices aren't even, they're, they're hooked up to a remote network. They're hooked up to a data bank somewhere. They're they're hooked up to the cloud, so we're we're basically shoving off the technical problems that may come up. But here's the thing. Fred may go. Now here's the sad part, right? If Fred's main skill was to basically figure out how to get the most out of that 1998 PC, he may not. He may have. He may have to get some new skills. Yeah. Okay. But if there's, there may be a new Fred and the new Fred might be, and there, here's the cool part. Now, Fred, instead of answering the, you know, Jane, my computer doesn't work. Can you come down here and fix my computer, right? He can now spend his day creating apps that take that, whatever that company is to a very different level, okay? And to try to maybe change the way that company does business or maybe that whole industry does business, right? So whole industries, let's take, for example, law. Law firms, like since before Abraham Lincoln, maybe since someone made an argument in Rome, I don't know, right? They all kind of work the same way. Some guy sat in an office and then you got a bill. And even in Roman times, they counted the amount of minutes that the facts you know, how many times they walked over to the fax machine, right? Okay, <laughs> whatever, right? Okay, now, you know, you, you're starting to see if you're interacting with law firms or other sort of more traditional things, you're seeing the introduction of really interesting technology. You're seeing that you're able to communicate with them differently, that they're billing you kind of differently, um, that you, you have access, there's really cool things happening. All, if you're involved in some issue, all the files and all the whatnot are, you don't have to print them all anymore, right? They're available in the cloud somewhere and you can look at them. Um, and it's possible that, that the firm, maybe it's, I'm just sort of making this up, specializes in, um, you know, uh, 
rent renting to, you're in New York City, right? So maybe yeah. it, the firm specializes in um, in landlord disputes in Manhattan. They may have developed an entire app that's just loaded with information and really cool things for their clients to basically, um, you know, uh, use. Um, and, you know, th that changes the way you maybe interact with that company, right? And that's happening in hundreds and hundreds of companies. You know, we're, you know, the, the advent of, of, you know, simple things like, let me order my meal before I get there. So it'll be there when I arrive, right? We're getting that now, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, changing it's it's uh, uh, i don't know if this is i think this may be happening around the country here in the northwest we have a huge chain called fred meyer it's kind of a schnazzier version of walmart um they're big you know one-stop centers now what you can do is you can order in other words they have skus from everything from lettuce to cement you can buy anything in, <laughs> under that roof right you can you can buy an engagement ring and you can buy a hammer and you can do it all in one trip one one trip now what you can do is you can get online and let's say before you leave work you order yeah put in your order I, i'm going to buy a bottle of milk and a chicken and whatever it is and you all you have to do is just is put your car in this special place in the parking lot and they run out and just put the put your order in your car and then you drive the way all the way home um so that's like you know that's maybe that'll work maybe or not but it, what's happening is we're seeing experimentation so here's a traditional retail model we're seeing now experimentation in that model right so what what fred meyer is really saying is there's some brick and mortar functions we think maybe don't go away with, you know, online ordering, you know, as in, Hey, I need a bottle of milk and we're out of cornflakes. Right. Um, but maybe what we can do is, is there a better way to deliver that to our customer? Right. Is there a better way for us to deliver that transaction? But I think this is happening, you know, with, with, um, you know, uh, I, I went through, um, on my airline, uh, I have an app on my iPhone, like most people do now. There was a storm, actually United Airlines, which often gets not good grades, but you know, the services. What they did though, was I thought very impressive technologically. There was a storm, the flight was canceled. I'm sitting there in, at PDX. There's a big red dot that showed up on my app. I opened it up and they had already put into my app I'd been completely reticketed, and all the information that I needed was there. I didn't have to stand in line for like in the old days where they, you know, yeah. one after another, they try to, right. I was, I was right. I, so uh, someone probably did this. I don't know if it was actually done by machine. It might've been, but they were, the delivery was great. In other words, nothing happened. I just walked over a different gate. I had a cup of coffee and I got onto a different plane. And what they did was they, they saved the money of having to hire six customer service people because you'll have 300 angry people all converging on the customer service desk. Now they just eliminated that through their innovation. Right. And so, you know, and, and, you know, again, with the economic history, right. I think even with the political discussion, the country is having, right now some of it might be really healthy here's what i was talking about with that churn right in other words 
that those jobs you just described, that that personnel no one doesn't have to be hired. They still have to have some people at the airport, but they don't have to staff like they used to. Um, but probably the staffing is in a different place, right? I would argue that as much as what I'm describing may have been automated, there was probably some human activity. There might've been some human oversight to make sure that the rerouting actually made sense or whatever. Yeah, and um, think about it, every technological advancement that eliminated a job in one place created it somewhere else, to your point. Right. It, it, um, so in other words, if that's why I think it's very good. It, history is very instructive. Believe it or not, and you know, I don't know if anyone will want to actually have enough insomnia to want to read about this stuff, but in the early 1930s, when the Depression was just really out of control, it's hard for people even now to understand how acute that crisis was. We think at one point, one in four, one in four American households, whole households, had actually no formal income coming in from anywhere. Nothing. Not just unemployed. There's like no money. <laughs> Nothing coming in. Okay. There was maybe some informal bartering. And I mean, you know, um, there were actually proposals. So people, you know, were thinking about this crisis. A lot of political leaders at the time thought that the real core root of the, root of the crisis was that people were being thrown off the land. In other words, the revolution that was happening in the background was the agricultural revolution that we're all familiar with now. We were going from a country where a third or some, somewhere between a fourth or, 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 or maybe 40% of the people living in the United States were farmers to our economy today where fewer than 1% of, of our population are actually doing farming, right? The whole exercise of farming, of harvesting, all that is carried out by a very small number of people. A um, hundred years ago, that wasn't true. So there, was, there were these elaborate proposals to you know, create new family farms, to figure out a way to get people to go back to the country. Um, now that sounds weird to us now, right? Uh, and you, and if you start to think about it, consider the acute dislocation that's going to happen. That if all you've known is sort of semi-mechanized agriculture, and now you're forced to move to a city, right? You have no urban skills. You've never taken a subway, uh, right? You've never held a job that's nine to five. You've never worked in a factory right? You're a hard worker, but your skills are in a very different world. That's the type of dislocation that was happening. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure. I mean, this is, the, this is the, the political and cultural thing that I think we face. I think sometimes the industry that I'm part of, if I think of myself as being part of IT, is a little bit indifferent to the human suffering that occurs, notwithstanding the fact that we go opportunities to your point so it's absolutely true shiny new jobs are opening up in it uh a world of new opportunities is is opening up and that world will probably be better to live in more productive more efficient here's a number at the end of world war one 
American households were spending about 50% of all the money that they brought in on food. That's why our grandparents were almost obsessive about licking the plate and all that, right? Not leaving any food behind or whatever, because food was as precious as gold. It was their parents or their parents' parents, it ate up half their income. Here we are, our, our main problem these days is we're mostly too fat, right? Food is cheap. We have abundant food. Um, and we have very few, and the paradox is we have very few people even involved in the whole exercise, right? Um, so notwithstanding the overweight problem, we're clearly in a better, uh, a better place. We are clearly a better country for not having to spend more than 10 or 15% most of us on food, right? Um, but there was a cost for some people. And I'm not sure whether we've figured out how to handle that now. So yeah, there's going to be this dislocation, right? There are going to be some people that maybe cannot be retrained. There are going to be some people that maybe cannot find new employment in the economy that comes, you know, as those storefronts close and something comes new in the same storefront. So here in Little Down, we are, I live in Vancouver, Washington, which is the little Vancouver. It's across from Portland. A friend of mine owned a furniture store, old old family furniture store in uh, in downtown Vancouver. And I think it had been in the family since like the 20s or something. <clears throat> Eventually, he during the crash, he closed his business. He didn't go bankrupt or anything. He just said, hey, it's, it's over. I'm retiring. And he still owns the building. And now in the building is a sushi restaurant. I mean, this is so 21st century, right? So we went to an old fashioned downtown furniture business. Those guys are all kind of disappearing. And now what do we have in there? We have a sushi restaurant. And upstairs are one of these like open kind of, like if you're an entrepreneur, you can rent a desk kind of thing. Oh, co-working space. Yeah, right, right. So we've like, I don't know, 10 really cool companies up there and people launching new companies up there. And then there's um, a, 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 a technology company that specializes in online graphics that also took up some of the office space. So right in that little building is basically a great story, right? Think about the jobs that got lost and the jobs that got created. So on the one hand, we got um, new sort of um, not not necessarily very advanced service jobs in the in the sushi restaurant, although you need to have some skills to be a sushi chef, but you know, right? So there's waiter, waitress, and some chef jobs and stuff. And then upstairs, probably the demographic that's that's working up there is really different than whoever worked in the furniture store, right? So we went from old fashioned, real old fashioned retail to, you know, I'm assuming all those companies are probably writing apps or I don't know they're doing they're up to something right <laughs> but uh, the skills that they're utilizing are probably really not the skills that that whoever was working in the furniture store when they walked out for the last time had to get a job back in that same building yeah and very that's different <laughs> right so and you see there the problem right if you're young enough and inclined enough um, you might be able to get retrained for that job or some other job for uh, for a lot of other situations, um, that may not be uh, available. And I think, you know, I think in technology, I, I hope people won't get too mad at me for saying this. I think there's a certain responsibility 
um, that especially some of the larger firms like Microsoft, Apple, Google, Avaya, Cisco, um, and maybe even us smaller firms, I think we all have to think a little bit about the larger impact of, I don't want us to slow down, right? I really don't want us to slow down, but I think we need to be aware of what we're doing, you know, and to maybe consider, um, let's put it on the table and talk about it as I guess a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely, it definitely needs to be addressed. And the thing is with more options open and with people becoming educated, there's so much more opportunity to add value to, to society as a whole and for all these, all these jobs to evolve into the new progressive technology. That's exactly it. And, you know, I, I uh, had a little discussion the other day with um, one of our local elected officials. Um, and it was a discussion over, you know, what is the purpose of college? And um, this person is a nice individual and her position was, you know, very utilitarian. Um, and she was basically saying, it's very important to connect college education to getting a job. And my response was, gee, I think that's a really bad idea. I know that's going to astound everyone given what we just talked about. Well, but well what, if, what if you're starting a business? How is that going to help? Well, that's sort of my point. In other words, I graduated, I'm going to date myself now. <laughs> I graduated in 1986. In 1986, you could at the University of Oregon, where I studied, um, <clears throat> decide to learn computer, you, uh, computer science. You could, the PhD programs actually recognize some computer languages as a foreign language towards the, the achievement of a PhD. And I'm not kidding. Okay. I'm laughing because that was my major as well. I took computer programming language. I can only imagine. Yeah, right. Now, I believe, I'm a big believer that all education, there's no such thing as useless education. That's really not true. But here's my bigger point. The purpose of university is not for you to get a job. The purpose of university is for you to learn how to think and for you to learn how to learn. And if you think about the, the, the most um, admired professions, medicine, okay, I'm going to say it law. Yes, I know all the lawyer jokes, but still, <laughs> we kind of, you know, you need them when you want them, right? When you, you, you get a lawyer when you need them, okay? These are people that have to continue. You want your medical license. You, you're, you're never out of school. You never really graduate, right? You're continuously learning. My dad graduated medical school, I think, in 56 or 57. I don't think anything that he learned, I mean, he, a lot of what he learned was very useful. But the practicing of medicine by 1970 was a really different world than what he uh, had graduated into just a few years before, right? And by the time he retired, uh, diseases, some types of cancer and so on that were completely beyond management were actually manageable by even the mid nineties and now 20 years later, even better. Right. So, but that's true for everything. So one of the big things we are going to need to talk about is, you know, an education, forget about practical education. That that's not a correct thing. We don't want to, we don't want to give people the impression that they learned a skill 
and then to have them very disappointed that that skill becomes dated five years later. I think that's a bad bargain, right? What we need is durable education. What we need is, I'm going to teach you so now you're, you're not stuck and wedded to one way of doing things, right? You, you, you know, I think one of the questions you guys, gave, you gave me sort of in the, in the ramp up to this is, do you have any regrets? Any regrets I've ever had was where I was too slow and too resistant to see something that was changing, right? And didn't treat it with respect personally, right? So I'm gonna, I'll, I'll say it, I'll, I'll admit it. I'm not alone in this. The rise of social media, I initially dismissed as being silly. And I just sort of didn't think much of it. I did not initially see how um, changing that was and how, how it needed to be treated with respect and how much I needed to really learn about it. And by the way, that was the same with most people. Right. And I don't know if I want to ever make that mistake again. I mean, in other words, if, if only I could sort of send on to the next generation the, the, mis the mistakes I made, right? And that is when stuff, not everything that comes up is, is you know, important, but to treat something new with a lot of respect, to actually make a conscientious effort to, to check it out, right? And not shrug your shoulders and say, ah, I don't understand it and it, and it stinks anyway or whatever, right? Which is a kind of normal reaction. Um, and to understand something else too. A lot of things that are new initially almost come off as a toy, right? Uh, the first time you got into a Prius, it might've made you feel like you were getting into just a big golf cart, <laughs> right? That was my initial reaction. This is kind of silly. God did not make man to live in anything other than a six cylinder big car <laughs> where you can put the hammer down and overtake everyone on the road, right? That is how man, God intended men to live, right? Right. But um, here was this new technology. Um, and now you know what, like all the cab fleets everywhere in the world are Priuses, you know, um, big change. It was the same right. thing with Uber, you know, right. with the taxi industry. Right. You know, how, you know, and that, well, so there's, there's a lesson for us all, right? Here's, here's a bulletin. Your customers will be happier if you give them what they want, right? So what did you want when you got in that cab? Um, I would like to pay by card today. The card's broken. Uh, I'd like to put my seatbelt on. The seatbelt's gone. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, what's that smell? It always smells like this, right? Uh, uh, you know, um, you're in New York. I got, I got into a cab uh, in New York this few years ago. <clears throat> the cab driver, I don't know actually how he got, how he drove. It was without us getting you in an accident. It was like on the cell phone the whole time with one hand on the wheel. He never, when he turned lanes and stuff, um, he never like looked, he just, right? He just sort of pointed the car and we moved and we never hit anything and I got there. Um, you know, the point is, right, the, we, everyone just put up with all this because, well, that was what was available. And then Uber came and said, um, hey, I'm, I'm gonna actually use 
your phone because you like using your phone, right? And that's how I'm going to find out where you are. And the driver is going to know where you're going even before you get in the cab. And I don't know if you've done this. I, I used Uber abroad. They picked me up and they knew where I was going and we never even had to talk, right? <laughs> I didn't talk the local lingo and it was great. I didn't have to find money. And, and you didn't I, get ripped off? No. And I got a thing from American Express two minutes later. Here's your receipt, right? It's on your card. And did you have a nice time? And right. And I mean, beautiful. Um, what is it? Airbnb, right? Airbnb. Airbnb. Yes. Yeah. Same thing, right? The first time you discover that for the same hundred bucks you've been shelling out for a kind of okay room in a business hotel, right? You can be in, you know, a house <laughs> or a condominium. Right. Right. House. Right. Or yeah, you can be in downtown Atlanta with a view. I mean, you, there's like really cool things. You're like, well, this is pretty good. You know, and, and how does that happen? Because, you know, I went to, um, you know, I, yes, I, I, I go to one conference basically about one a month. So there was a major Microsoft event in Chicago um, and it was a terrific event. So I'm not critical of that, but the hotels kind of took advantage. $1,200 a night um, on Michigan wow. Avenue, right? And even nearby. 1200 Okay, the, the Hampton Inn, I won't name actual companies, but let's just say the Hampton Inn, the Marriott, Fairfield, all that type of hotel, those type of guys, those were all charging 500 bucks. And that was a discount. <laughs> right. So half the people, I met people, I met one consultant that, that, that used one of these uh, other services. He just slept on someone's couch for 50 bucks. Right? He was traveling alone. He was a consultant. Some other guy was in some other, some downtown Chicago apartment for like $180. The point is, right, these things have opened up. Um, they're giving people what they want. They're delivering a great service. And then you kind of don't want to go back. Mm -hmm. So this is where, so this is the, 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 the this, uh, and by the way, this, there was, a, again, there was an economist. His name was Joseph Schumbader. And he had this great expression the creative gales of, of destruction. In other words, there's a creative process in the, in the economy. It generates incredibly new things, great things people want, but it's at the same time very destructive. Mm -hmm. And the two happen concurrently. And he wrote like whole books about this, right? The problem is that, and I think we are literally having this experience right now in the economy. You can have top-notch innovation and incredible innovation and, and uh, job creation. In other words, everything that everyone said in, in the political campaign we just lived through was actually true, right? All true, even though it was all contradictory. The one side saying we had incredible job creation, we have all these new companies, we have low unemployment, blah, 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 blah. That's all true. The other saying, well, we have terrible poverty. We have cities that are all broken down. We have rampant, uh, you know, abuse of uh, opioids and because people are depressed because they can't get jobs and we have people that have never re-entered the workforce. And <clears throat> that was also true. Those two realities were actually concurrently true on account of one is a reality from the economy that we, are, that we were just in but are no longer there. And the other was the reality of the new economy. 
to Americas, right? So the question I think on the table is how do we make the new economy work for everybody? I'm not sure, I, I don't pretend to have the answer to that, by the way. But no, I think uh, you've given the answer and the answer is, the best way to describe it is to quote one of my favorite people, Gary Vaynerchuk. He likes to say, don't become romantic with how you do business. So, you know, to your point, like you mentioned, Airbnb, right? Uber, if, if, and social media. So people that are comfortable with the way things are and they don't want change and they're too stubborn to see the world as it is, that's where you get stuck. Uh, but if you open your eyes and you accept the possibility that things are changing and, you know, um, I really need to take a look at this new technology because there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of hype around that. Um, and Gary likes to always say, you know, the best thing you could do for yourself is to put yourself out of business. Think of how you <laughs> put yourself out of I love that. Right. <laughs> I, I, I uh, in my company, I sometimes will tell uh, my uh, uh, fellow associates and so on. I, this morning I fired Doug Green. What a rube he was. What a, you know, what a, what a clunker that guy turned out to be. And yeah, I think you need to do that. In other words, you need to, um, it's very hard to do, right? But mm. it, you need to be self-critical. Uh, the minute you become an owner, if you've ever had the experience of being first the worker in a company, and then you bought that same company or you went off and formed your own, you know, the, the day you become the owner, um, you go, if you're at all sensitive <laughs> to other people, you go to yourself or your wife or husband or whoever, and you say, you know, I think people are talking to me a little bit differently. And I'm noticing everyone's agreeing with me. <laughs> and everyone's asking for my permission to do things and so on. And everyone's very agreeable, but I'm, I, I kind of think I'm not getting information like I used to. Right. So that relationship changes. You're writing their paycheck. It's a big deal. People want to keep their job. Um, and that's okay. I mean, someone has to be in charge and so on, but it does cut off the, inf it does cut off some blood flow to your brain. Right, the information that you need, that you might have gotten. I mean, here's a kind of wild uh, little side sidebar. If you want great management advice, look what the Pope did when he took over from the previous administration, right? I, I don't know if this is true, but I heard he has lunch. Instead of having lunch in the grand apartment that they always fed the Pope in, I guess, he eats with the young priests. Right. Like any organization, it's a big organization, the Vatican, and they've got apparently, you know, there's always young blood, right, that actually do a lot of stuff. Right. So they've got a lot of young guys there, I guess, whatever they're doing, they're doing the, the, the busy work of, of running the organization. He has lunch with them. Well, gee, that's brilliant. It is. Right. This is, it's like, oh, this guy's this. Is, this guy's got it. Right. This guy under whatever you think of whatever he's doing from a management point of view, wow, that's a great idea. Because, you know, he's going to hear all this ground floor stuff. Right? He, he, he's going to hear the problems that are coming up and the bureaucratic um, snafus and bottlenecks, or maybe conflicts that are kept away from him, right? Um, and other things. And I think also he's going to hear new ideas. Um, and it's not going to be all processed cheese, 
right? In other words, he's, I'm in a little company. In a very large company, I think there's the bubble problem, right? The, the folks that are running the show are insulated by a layer of, of middle and upper management who processes the cheese before they deliver it to the guys on top. <laughs> I right? love that analogy. Right. You know, and so, you know, for example, you know, the scandal at Wells Fargo, which, you know, is uh, very famous. You know, you have the problem of, of a CEO sort of saying, oh, I didn't really know what was going on. And there's a part of me that says, that's completely ridiculous. What do you mean you didn't know? It's possibility, right? It's, we have, to, we have to entertain the possibility that he probably was legally responsible, but he may not have really understood really what they were doing. He may have had a vague idea because there's so many layers away. He may have, in other words, had he only spent, had he only spent a day in an actual branch, just hanging out with everybody with no other senior management around or a whole yeah. week there. Yeah, he, he might have. Yeah. yeah. And he may have under he may have understood how maybe well intended, you know, these things start maybe not so bad, right? Maybe it was just an initiative to try to grow services, to try to actually offer customers more stuff. To, uh, right. It may have actually started out really nice. And what happened was it got it mutated into this horrific thing where people were writing, where, where they felt that they were under so much pressure that they were writing phony accounts and all the rest of But how did that happen, right? Management may not have been even knowing what was going on on the ground floor. Um, I think it was Bloomberg uh, that used to do, when he took over New York City, he would just spend a day with the garbage men or do a run around with the cops. Or, you know, in other words, hang out with all these frontline services to see for himself what was going on. And I also like the idea that he took the subway to work. At least that's what I heard. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Because, you know, how do you run a big city? You have to smell it, right? Especially in New York City. You yeah. have to be involved. Especially in the subway. <laughs> right. You know, it's like a simple thing, but right. It's quality of life. If that thing doesn't smell good, you're going to have unhappy people. Right. And there's nobody who's going to go to Gracie Mansion and say, hey, the subways stink. Right. <laughs> um you have to see it for yourself. And then you're a human being, you're gonna to go to the guys that maintain that subway station and say, hey, how come this, the subway smells like pee? And what can we do about it, right? Uh, right? I think that's, this I think is something, um, you know, that the humanization of, of how you run a company, right? That um, uh, keeping in touch with what's actually going on. And then that also, I think, puts you in touch with your customers, right? In other words, like I said, I have a very simple theory. If you give them what they want, they tend to like you. There you go. <laughs> you know, if you, what happens to a lot of companies is there's a whole economic theory of rent, not just like I rented an apartment or something like that, but you have an asset of some kind that some people need and you just sort of live off that asset. Um, and it has a kind of monopoly. So people are basically unhappily maybe paying you a fee for the use of that asset, and, but you're not doing any value add. And that's kind of roughly speaking an idea of what rent is. Um, a lot of companies find themselves in an advantageous position where they're literally able to charge their customers a kind of rent, right? On account of they have no other choice. 
So when companies that are, unfortunately, I'm not accusing them of this, but Microsoft has occasionally been accused of this type of practice, a monopolistic practice, right? Where there's, you're so dominant, you now have an asset, you don't really have to do much with it and you get, you just get revenue because you exist, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Um, and there's no other show in town. A great, a great uh, example would be, you know, in the development of the country, uh, the railways were for a long time resented because in a lot of places they abused their power. They set grain prices. They said they did a lot of things that more than just, you know, here's a, here's a car, put some stuff in it. Right. <laughs> they, they used their power. I think companies need to be aware of that. Right. In other words, there's great profit opportunity in using sometimes a special position and, and, you know, it's a fine line, right? We're all here to make a profit. We exploit opportunities. That's not a bad thing, but just to be aware of, again, it's like, where does that end and where do where does real abuse begin? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Doug, this has all been really fascinating and enlightening. Um, I know you're a busy guy and we're going to wrap up in just a moment. Um, but just before we do, how do people connect with you? So um, we are the best place to do best place to see what we do is just visit our website, telecomreseller.com. Um, you'll notice right at the very top of our menu, there is some subscribe buttons and advertise buttons and about buttons. And you can check out some information there. You can order up a media kit. But you can just send me an email. Uh, my email address is publisher at usernews.com. I'll be very happy to answer any questions. Um, and um, if, you know, uh, our, we have 10 different e-bulletins that come out every day covering all the different topics of unified communications. They're completely free. And uh, I'll make a, a, a shameless uh, thing here that if, you know, if you want to reach to our, our, our audience, we have very reasonable prices. Just come and talk to me. <laughs> Super. I'm, I'm going to have all that in the show notes so that people listening to this interview can just click on that and get right to you. All right. Well, I'll look forward to doing this. If we can do it again, I'd be happy to do it. Yeah. You know, we definitely uh, need a sequel to this because there are so many things I still love to discuss with you. Um, <laughs> it's too bad we ran out of time, um, which is always a good thing because it means that we were doing phenomenally well and I really enjoyed our discussion. So Doug, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your expertise and really doing a, an amazing description of the marketplace and, and how the technology is evolving and, and how to basically just grow your business. And I'll tell you, I'll never look at those old photos the same way again. Those old grainy photos have, you never thought that had anything to do with cloud, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> except that all that junk was going into the cloud. So, so now you do. So, hey, it was, it was a great experience and um, have a great weekend. Thank you for setting this up. <laughs>